from Madison, Wisconsin, World Dairy Expo presents The Dairy Show, the digital meeting place of the global dairy industry, where we sit down to talk cows, cutting edge technology, and the colored shavings. Hello and welcome back to The Dairy Show. I'm your host, Katie, and joining me this week all the way from the East Coast is Ms. Alicia Lamb, who is involved with Oakfield Corners Dairy and Lamb Farms. And uh, welcome to the show, Alicia. Thank you. All right. So as we get started, I'm going to have you do a little bit more of an introduction of yourself. Um, so tell us about you as well as give us an overview of uh, your farming operation. Um, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm looking forward to being with you today. Uh, so my name's Alicia Lamb, and uh, I come from a non-traditional dairy background, uh, probably unlike some of the people or most of the people out there in dairy world. Um, I'm originally from the state of Florida, and my introduction to the dairy industry began as a 4-H project when I was nine years old. And uh, not too many people know this, but I started out my show and career with two jerseys and a Guernsey. So a little bit different from uh, what we have here in Oakfield right now. Uh, I graduated the University of Florida with a degree in animal and dairy science. And that's where I met my husband. He was uh, managing a farm very close to the university. And uh, he was actually my junior project. <laughs> um, uh, where I went to the farm that he was working on and, and did a, a study on that farm. So uh, after graduation, moved up here to Oakfield and been here ever since. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about the farm. Uh, so it's a family farm located in western New York, about halfway between Buffalo and Rochester. And Jonathan, my husband, and his brother Matthew are the 12th generation in the family to farm. Um, back in the mid-60s, uh, Jonathan's dad, Gordon, and his grandfather, Leslie, uh, we're milking about 50 cows in a town about 10 miles from where we're currently located. And the state of New York, through eminent domain, came and purchased the land, and it's now a state park. So uh, his grandfather and, and dad began the search for a new facility to milk cows. They found the farm in Oakfield and purchased it, the land, and about 50 cows came with it. So uh, they started Land Farms Incorporated in 1966 with about 100 to 110 cows. In the mid-70s, a non-family partner was introduced to the operation to manage the crops and the manure. The Land family likes to work with cows, not not crops and manure. So it's kind of a nice partnership there uh, between the two families that are involved on in the operation. Um, one thing that the Lamb family does a really, really good job at is managing cows, keeping cows healthy, getting them bred, keeping them alive. So a recurring theme here at uh, Lamb Farms is internal herd growth. Um, so from those 100 cows, that began in the mid-60s until Jonathan returned home after college in 1996. The farm grew uh, pretty much exclusively through internal herd growth to a size of 1,450 cows. Big, big increases in the family farm. And like many farms of that time, they just expanded down the road, uh, built new barns, uh, added facilities as needed to keep up with the cows. So, um, yeah, internal herd growth rate is great but can be a challenge to manage at times too. When Jonathan returned to the farm, uh, there was a facility that became available very close to the original home operation. 
and they purchased that in 1998. It had capacity for about 400 cows at the time, and uh, they were able to fill the with the excess cows that they had from the original farm. And uh, through some expansion over the years, they're now milking about 1,300 cows. Um, if anyone has been to uh, Lamb Farms 2, if you've ever been to our Spring Sensation sale, or if you've come to see the show cows, uh, that's the farm that was purchased in 98. I should say that the original home farm now is milking about 2,300 cows as well through expansion there over time. Um, one thing that the family has done is tried to market their excess cattle, uh, excess fresh heifers into uh, other expanding operations or into Canada. Um, but of course, that's very dependent on milk price and marketing conditions. So uh, when milk price declined in the uh, mid-2000s, um, that market dried up and, and the farms began overflowing pretty significantly again. So uh, there was a facility that was uh, sitting empty about an hour north of us, right on Lake Ontario. And they purchased that farm in 2009 and uh, they're now milking about uh, 2,000 cows in that facility. And again, uh, in the mid-2000, or in the mid-teens, I guess you would call it, um, milk price declined again. The uh, market dried up for the sale of those uh, fresh two-year-olds, and so they began looking at other options. Um, and if anyone who milks cows remembers how the mid-teens were, you know that a lot of cooperatives in the area were restricting expansions, restricting uh, the ability to produce more milk. So the land family began looking at options um, outside of our our uh, Western New York geographic area and outside of our um, local cooperative to produce milk. So they purchased a farm in Western Ohio, right along the Ohio-Indiana border. And uh, that facility was about at half capacity. So they're milking about right around 2,000 cows there as well now. Uh, that's Convoy Dairy in Western Ohio. Uh, yeah, so we're a large farm, but it, like I said, it's a large family farm. Uh, between the, the VZ family, and the Lamb family, there's about 12 of us that work uh, at the day-to-day -day operations. Um, I should say, too, um, the VZs are managing about 12,000 acres of cropland here in western New York. Uh, most of that is done internally in-house. Uh, and then it's about 1,400 acres in Ohio. And a lot of that in Ohio, just because of, of distance, is done through uh, custom harvesting operations. How does Oakfield Corners Dairy fall into all of this? Where do where does the show piece of the lamb farms fit in the puzzle? Yeah, that's often a, a common question because a lot of people uh, don't understand the dynamics of all of it. So uh, being a larger farm uh, with different uh, partnerships and, and how everything is broken down, uh, Lamb Farms Incorporated is the overall umbrella operation um, that has the cows, the crops, the land, the equipment, all under that umbrella. And Oakville Corners Dairy is the segment of the farm that works and manages with the cows. So um, Oakville Corners Dairy actually owns not just the genetic side, the show cows, the index cows, but also the commercial cows. So we use uh, Oakville Corners Dairy as our, our marketing piece, if you want to call it that, for our genetics program. Sure. So those cows are running in the herd or they're in their own show barn separate, especially the you know the show cows we would normally see at Expo or out on the Tambark Trail? So uh, 
everything is uh, for the most part running with the herd, but we do have a show barn specifically for our show cows. I'm sure you'll ask about that later on. Um, some of the show cows, you know, have to be managed a little bit differently, and, and we manage those uh, 365 days a year for the show program. So uh, we've got capacity for 28 milking cows in that facility. Uh, so it's a pretty minute part of the overall scale of the operation. Um, and Janie Black manages the, the milking cows, the show cows that you'd see on the show Tanbark Trail. Sure. So with the different pieces that you guys are involved with in, if we look at the genetic side of everything, so between the show cattle and the larger commercial cattle, how does the breeding philosophy differ between those aspects of the farm or if it does differ at all? And really, what are those guiding principles of your breeding program that keep cows along around for so long? Yeah. So, you know, a big focus of our breeding program is focusing on the fundament fundamentals. So uh, focusing on functional types, so sound feet and legs, quality udders, uh, adequate strength, the ability for those cattle to compete in the herd, uh, all the while producing uh, good quantities of milk and components and low somatic cell score. So those are the overall, I would say, guiding breeding philosophies for everything. Um, so we've got the genetics program with our show cows and with the index program. And show cows are a little bit different, of course. Um, we have to manage them, feed them a little bit differently uh, than the rest of the herd to keep them in show shape um, throughout the year. Uh, also, as, as you're aware, some of those show cows are, are just built a little bit differently than commercial cows. Um, so while we still function on those sound quality traits, obviously we have to have the show types. So they're a little bit taller, a little bit more angular and feminine um, uh, than the commercial and the index cows. But, you know, we still try to keep that fundamental basis of, of soundness of traits and high quality um, milk and overall pounds of milk, milk production and health traits for, um, for all aspects of the farm. Um, we do have a very high index program. And of course, that's um, the focus of that is to make the next brood cow, the next uh, hot bull sire that's going to be out there. So we're focusing on GTPI traits and net merit traits uh, primarily uh, for that breeding program. Sure. So I've had friends attend Expo who commercial dairy, and they always ask me as they're watching the show, what do these cows have to do with my cows at home? How do those two segments relate? Or what can they take away from the dairy cattle show at Expo, especially when, it, when we think about genetics on it? So as someone who's doing both, what do you think that that connection is between those pieces and how do they stay relevant to each other or how do they become relevant to each other? So, you know, and that can be a challenge, of course, a lot of showing genetics, a lot of the marketing that we do with our show cows, it's, um, you know, specific matings that um, marketable mating that you have to have sometimes uh, with those show cows. Like I said, we still need to meet those goals of functional traits and, and production traits. Um, but yeah, it's it's tough being uh, having such a large side of the farm being conventional, commercial, um, having those two sides of the world, if you want to call it that, coming together. So um, 
locales in the show ring are big, let's be honest. Um, and a lot of them don't fit well in our commercial operations. They're just too tall to get through the parlor sometimes. They're too big for free stalls. Um, so that's a challenge. Uh, also, as uh, my husband will oftentimes tell you that if you look at a low production list, there's a lot of uh, show type breeding cows that end up on that show and that uh, low production list uh, week to week. And that can be a bit frustrating, too. So one aspect of a breeding program that we're really uh, beginning to focus on is uh, trying to come up with that hybrid or, or crossover type of cow that will meet both situations. Um one thing that's been nice with the show program and the show uh, model cow over the years is that they don't have to be as extremely tall as they used to be. They don't have to have that extreme uh, daringness and refinement that they used to. And I think that's such a positive direction that we in the show ring are, are moving towards. And I think that might continue over time to a certain aspect. Um, just to kind of help bridge that gap between uh, conventional and, and show breeding models. Um, yeah, so one thing that we've been working on is, is that to fill that gap to, we've got a cow family that we're working on. Uh, she's a Delta, OCD Delta Missy 4212. Um, she's a cow that's lived her whole life in the freestyles and a cow that's got a gorgeous 97 point udder and um, best udder on the farm, hands down. And so we've used some uh, higher type bulls on her and uh, we've got some of her sons in stud now. And I think that it's, you know, those types of matings that we who began our dairy career and who really enjoy the showering uh, functions, those are the ones that we're most excited about and those that are gonna be able to translate into the commercial herd. Um, and, you know, seamers have a few bulls like that as well and, and many others and, and many breeders that you talk to that have that show background are going to some of these types of matings, I think. Yeah, I, I think the industry is trying to figure out how it fits together or how those two pieces work together because there is such a disconnect or there has been such a disconnect. So it's nice to hear from breeders like yourself that are making steps to, to connect those pieces and, and are clearly doing a good job at it. I mean, a 97-point memory system in a freestyle is mind-blowing to me. That's so great to hear. Um, and so on that note... How have you seen the Holstein breed evolve over years? And I believe you're also involved a little bit with red and whites. Um, so let's let's talk about that. How have those breeds changed since you got into dairy when you were nine years old and started paying attention to this world? And uh, and now, so I think the biggest change uh, on the show as or the show side that we have seen has just been the way we look at cows. You know, we don't have to have those super extremes like we used to have. And and like I said, I think that's such a, a, a positive trend that we're going with. Um, the red and whites have increased dramatically over the years. You know, back uh, 15 years ago, I can't remember when the red and white show first began with Expo, but it was an okay show. Your, your first and second place cows were nice. And then, you know, you get to the bottom of the class and it's like, oh, you know, they're, they're cows. Um, and the quality has increased in the red and white breeds so dramatically in the past few years. Um, you know, maybe some influence from uh, different breeders, breeders becoming involved, some influence with uh, some of the black and white genetics to help out with those traits as well. Um, I think one of the biggest things that we've seen is that um, red and white cows can actually milk um, if they're bred right. Uh, you know, five, 10 years ago, 
I don't want to point out any specific bull names, but we we used those bulls, and they, you know, they lasted half a lactation in the commercial barns. Uh, that was pretty good for them. They were pretty uh, quickly culled out since they just didn't milk. Um, so yeah, you, you get some of the influence with, uh, other breeds, uh, other black and white bulls being brought into it. And it's, it's really transformed the way that red and whites, um, work in the commercial, uh, milking system now. Where do you think it's going in the future? What are the, the next traits that we're really going to be focusing on, or is it going to be a complete package or, or what, what does the breed look like in the future for you? Well, that's the question, right? Um, that's what we're all trying to uh, breed for and shoot for, I guess. You know, uh, there's a lot of skepticism out there, uh, especially from type breeders when it comes to genomics. And I've had the luxury to see how real genomic trends are. Um, you know, you, you breed a cow to milk with genomic traits, she milks. You breed a cow to breed, if you want to call it that, and, and get bred year after year with genomic traits with DPR, she gets bred. And uh, I think those genomic type traits are just beginning to come into play now. And I think we're going to see, I, I hope we do anyhow, see a greater focus on some of that in the future and some evolution of that uh, in the future to allow more relevance of those type traits with our show cows, because I, I do truly believe that genomics works. So how have you seen genomics then impact the, the dairy industry? We haven't really, I guess, talked a whole lot about that side of it either, but you do work with index cows and genomics cows. How, how is that? fitting into all of this as well. Yeah, we do have a, a very significant genomic and index program. And like I said, you know, if you breed for a trait and a highly correlated genomic trait, it, it works. You know, you can transform the dynamics of your herd pretty uh, rapidly nowadays um, just by breeding say if you want to have a high fat herd, uh, breed for high fat bulls. If you want to have a high GTPI herd, breed for high GTPI bulls. It doesn't take too many generations of breeding for those traits to uh, achieve your goals in the herd. Um, you know, I think, like I said, I think that some type traits, tight type traits, excuse me, can uh, come into play as well. I think the Canadians might have a better handle on that right now than we do here in the U.S., um, they're looking at confirmation rather than type. Um, but all those things, you know, it's it's genomics. It's uh, as much as some people uh, don't like to look at that and think about it that way. It, it is uh, it is a real thing. Yeah, I, I think it's a great tool that dairy producers can use. It's promising to hear from breeders like yourself that are doing this and seeing the results and, and that it's working for you guys and, and that it can be a great tool if you want to create a herd that is across the board is just good or you can breed for a certain thing. It's very consistent. Okay, so I wanna change tracks a little bit here. Um, and we're going to talk about the 2020 show season, which uh, has been, you know, the lack of 2020 show season. <laughs> right, exactly. The lack of 2020 show season, the, the basically the collapse of the 2020 show season. And, and obviously it's all due to the pandemic and we all know about that. But how is that impactful to breeders and exhibitors like yourself and, you know, maybe even potentially the breed in the future? Like, are we going to see those improvements this year because we didn't have a show season? No, it definitely was a, a huge hole for our, our business uh, at Oakville Corners. Um, you know, we sell a lot of show calves to kids. We sell a lot of show 
calves and heifers and cows to other breeders. Um, and when shows began uh, getting canceled, we had to cancel our own sale that we had planned for the spring. Um, we didn't have a market for those cattle, you know, and um, when you are on pace and you schedule these sales and these activities so far in advance and they're canceled, uh, you have an excess of animals that you didn't plan on. Uh, so, you know, it's a confluence of factors there, you know, do you have enough feed to feed these animals? Do you have the labor to take care of these animals? There's, you know, just so many factors that go into this. And um, so, you know, we're fortunate, I guess, if you want to call it that, that we're a larger operation and we can absorb some of these costs and some of these excess cattle uh, and just move them right into uh, the system. But if you look at some smaller breeders that I'm really good friends with, they didn't have that luxury. And a lot of their uh, income is uh, dependent on marketing, you know, the sales of these animals. So when those markets dried up, they uh, were in a world of hurt. Um, so, you know, some of those things people just don't think about, I guess, but, uh, for us that work in the genetics world, it's, it was a huge impact, a huge hit on our, on our economic well-being. Have you seen anyone who successfully kind of navigated that change or have, you know, made progress in, in making up some of that economic loss basically because of the sh lack of show season? Yeah, there's been some uh, farms that have stepped up and done well. I know Duckett's had a sale uh, this spring and they did pretty well with that or this summer, I guess it was. Uh, there's been a few sales in Canada. Uh, we've sent some up there. I think uh, obviously they have been impacted in the same regard, but I think maybe to a lesser extent because of the way that their uh, milk is marketed up there versus us here in the States. Um, so yeah, there have been some successes, but uh, you know, just not enough quantity wise to, uh, to make up for what we had to absorb on the farm. Sure. And maybe one of the results of the show season collapse, if you if we want to call it that, uh, was the appearance of more regional shows that came up this year. Um, and, and really across the country, they kind of came up all over the place. And I believe you were involved with planning one of them. Um, but let's talk about that. And what was the Tanvar trail like this summer as you exhibited but also what was it like planning a show during covid and how did you guys overcome those obstacles so uh back when our new york spring show was canceled and then our uh state fair uh, regional shows began uh, being canceled. Uh, there were a few that popped up. And to be honest, uh, we kept our ears open in any show that began to uh, become available. I, I blank and entered for a lot of shows. <laughs> we weren't accepted to all of them, but I, I blank and entered for a lot of shows this spring and this summer. Uh, we were fortunate uh, fortunate to be able to go to the New England show. Uh, they uh, were very welcoming and very gracious to host us up there. And we were grateful for that. Um, New York Holstein stepped in and had a wonderful state show, the best state show that I've seen here in New York in, in 20 some odd years. Uh, and I know Wisconsin had a great state show. So it was awesome seeing some of these shows come into greater play and having more uh, participation, I guess you could say, than maybe they traditionally did. Um, so all through this, of course, um, you know how farmers are. We always talk to each other. And there were a few of us here within New York that um, 
we're talking about the impacts of COVID and uh, the effects on our, our marketing of the cattle. And what could we do to create uh, an event, a show for, for other breeders? And it w- there were three of us here in New York that began the discussions. And we had planned just a New York show. And then all of a sudden, lo and behold, World Dairy Expo gets canceled. And we're like, ah, what are we going to do? So um, that broadened our horizons a little bit um, to try and uh, fill a void, a huge void um, that uh, we kind of needed for our marketing programs for 2020. So uh, a committee of us got together, a group of breeders, uh, both from the U.S. and Canada at the time, and uh, came up with the idea for a show and uh, began discussions of what do we need to do, who needs to be involved, you know, uh, we don't know if we're going to have any money or not to do this, (laughs) are we going to be able to do it? So uh, a lot of of discussions, a lot of questions, Um, I think. In reality, it was nothing that any of us ever wanted to do, but it was born out of uh, necessity and became um, a passion and and a a desire for all of us to make something successful. And I think we did okay with it, I think. So, yeah. (laughs) I think so. I thought the show went off really well. Uh, It was fun to watch remotely uh, from Wisconsin since we were trying to do our best to not be there in person because spectators really weren't encouraged. And unfortunately I had to be okay with that. I really wanted to be there. Um, But so what was the biggest hurdle then for you guys in planning everything? I mean, you started from scratch. It's a committee of volunteers, correct? Correct. Yeah. How did you take that all on? Yeah, it it was a committee of volunteers, a committee of uh, breeders basically. And, um, you know, so there were a lot of hurdles to overcome. Um, finding a location, our goal was to have seven breeds represented from across the U.S. and Canada. Um, finding a, a location and spacing for something of that magnitude is challenging. Um, we found the location here in New York, and unfortunately, New York is very restrictive with COVID. So. Um, that plan got changed and, and obviously got moved to Ohio uh, about uh, August 27th, I believe. So we kind of had to restart a little bit. Um, additionally, the Canadians, I think, recognized that they weren't going to be able to make it over, which was uh, very disappointing to us. So, you know, a couple changes there. Uh, the space at the facility in Ohio, while wonderful, it's limiting. We had 711 head on site, and um, that that was at max capacity, I would say. So I know there were a lot of colored breed uh, breeders that were unhappy, but I don't think we could have fit five more cows on in that uh, in that facility. Um, but you know. It was a year, it was kind of like the, a, a unicorn, a once-in-a-lifetime thing where World Dairy Expo didn't happen, a lot of other shows didn't happen, and we were so fortunate to have sponsors step up to the plate and step up to the plate in a big way in a year that otherwise would not be possible. And um, they came through, we were able to uh, not only pay for the show, but also uh reward the exhibitors with some nice prizes, I think. I I hope everyone was happy with uh, the prizes that were uh, given out at the show. And uh, it was great. I think 
<clears throat> so many shows got canceled. So many events uh, were canceled this year just to have the ability to not only go to a show, but to go to a show and compete on a, a large scale with uh, the best breeders from across the U.S. Um, to see each other, to have that camaraderie, that uh, sense of normalcy and, and a, a crazy year meant more than anything, I think, to everybody. So I, I was really happy and, and proud to be involved in that. Yeah, and I think that lack of normalcy is is really what people are, are missing right now. And at the those local shows that I've attended, it's really that camaraderie is, is ever present like it always is. But uh, it had to be weird to be out showing and to not know that at the end of the show season, you're going to be in Madison at, at Expo. It was really, yeah, it was really weird, you know, and actually so... Jonathan, my husband and I were talking the other day and we're like, wow, Royal would be in, you know, a couple of weeks. There's no Royal <laughs> uh, Expo. We were supposed to be in, in Madison last week. There was no Expo. So, yeah, it's really uh, it's kind of this surreal year overall um, with all of these things going on. And hopefully, um Hopefully things will settle down. Hopefully we can have some of these normal functions again next year. And, uh, you know, I, I think the hardest thing is just not being able to see each other in those environments. And, um, you know, we all have, we all love cows and work with cows. And um, some of us that are dependent on income from marketing those cows really needed that uh, outlet and that event to do that. Sure, sure. So next year, we're, you know, we're moving forward with plans for Expo 2021. We are full steam ahead, crossing our fingers that this vaccine thing gets figured out, and we will be able to have a show like we're used to having. But, you know, assuming that next year is a normal year, and that COVID is under control. Do you think we're going to have larger regional shows continuing into the future? Or is that like a, you know, one-off people are getting their fill this year, next year it's going to be back to the large scale national shows, or are they going to have this greater appreciation for these regional shows that stuck around and stuck by them? And hopefully they'll, you know, continue to come back to Expel, obviously is what we're hoping for and we're wishing for. But what do you, how do you see that playing out in your mind? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something that uh, I think about every day, to be honest, you know, um, I, I think I said earlier that my goal, my personal goal, and I think the goal of the other people on the committee was never to run a show. Um, you know, it was something that uh, we had to do. And, you know, if God forbid, if we have to do it again, I think we could because we have some of that experience under the belt now. But I think uh, at least for us in Oakfield Corners, and I think for many other breeders, we're hoping that uh, we're we're back in Madison next year on the colored shavings. Um, you know, as far as some of these other regional shows, I think it's been great to see them uh, being fleshed out and explored a little bit more. Um, you know, I think assuming we can get back to having uh, like the Big E and Harrisburg and, and uh, you know, the Western National and all those shows, some of these regional shows timing wise may not fit in there nicely uh, for the more established shows. So, you know, all those things have to be taken into consideration. Um, sponsorships, not going to be near as easy, I don't think, to come by in a, a quote unquote normal year. Um, because companies are, 
you know, I, I know they're planning their uh, budgeting already for this for next year right now. So I, I guess I don't know the answer to that. I guess the answer comes whenever um, whenever we get down to Madison in, in what is it September or October of next year. If we don't, then uh, then we'll have to cross that bridge if we get there. Yeah, and let's really really hope we don't get to that bridge. Uh, and let's let's hope all leads. All roads lead to Madison, and we'll all be back together in September, and it'll be that big film reunion that we all missed this year. Yeah, yeah, I hope so, too. I really, truly do. Yeah, and, and yeah, like I said, we're, we're really hoping, too. But, uh... <laughs> I know, yeah. And, you know, I'll be, I'll be honest, uh, getting a lot off topic here, but I commend you guys at Expo for uh, creatively trying to fill some of these voids that... Uh, have been missed, you know, with, with the podcast, with some of the things you guys are doing on social media to help fill some of this. I know it's got to be a challenge for you guys uh, that work at World Dairy Expo as well. Yeah, I think it's forcing us to be really creative um, and think outside of the box. Uh, we also, you know, launched Pavilion Promotions on our website this year, and, and we're hoping that takes off and offers people a place to market their genetics as well outside of the five days of World Dairy Expo. So... Yeah, so thank you for that. But um, and we're actually gonna probably wrap up on that note because I think this has been great. And um, yeah, thank you for the wonderful conversation, Alicia, and uh, for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me again and for thinking of me. And and like I said, I hope that uh, we see you guys in Madison. And that is a wrap on this week's episode. Thank you all for tuning in and giving this a listen. Don't forget to hit subscribe on whatever platform you are hearing this on. And don't forget to tell your friends about The Dairy Show. We would love to have them join us as well. And last but not least, if you have any guest suggestions of people you want to hear from or topics you would like us to cover, feel free to send us an email at wde at wdexpo.com. We would love to hear from you. And until next time, I'm Katie Schmidt, and this is The Dairy Show. 